This is a recording from a Sunday meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. Humanism is a progressive worldview that, without supernaturalism, affirms our ability and responsibility to lead meaningful, ethical lives capable of adding to the greater good of humanity. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca and make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the BC Humanist Podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of our staff or board of directors. Wow, good morning. What a t- great turnout. And thank you, uh, Ian, for having us. Um, my name is Jovian Radeshwar. I am an American. I'm a recent transplant to Canada about a year ago, um, and I teach political science at Douglas College. Um, and I happen to be fortunate enough to meet these folks and also Dr. Chin Banerjee, who's not here with us today, um, who uh, has started an organization called South Asian Network for Secularism and Democracy. This organization's been involved in a lot of different kinds of causes over the years. Um, frankly, too many to simply list. There's conferences that we hold all the time. There was one not that long ago that we held at Simon Fraser University on uh, the nuclear war issue in the Indian subcontinent specifically, and we even managed to get a very famous uh, Pakistani atomic scientist, Pervez Hoodboy, to come all the way from Pakistan for that conference. So that was really an excellent event, and we have events like this frequently. Um, so do check out our website, Facebook page. You can keep up with events like that over there. Um, Today, specifically, we're going to be addressing a number of uh, uh, really sort of hot-button issues as it pertains to questions of identity, questions of democracy, freedom, religious identity, really hot-button issues. Obviously, here in Canada, just a few days ago, there was a very controversial issue, uh, a bill passed in uh, uh, Quebec, which people probably have different opinions about, of course, um, and that's one that is very much a concern at the heart of uh, some of Sansad's work uh, as well, and we'll talk about that today. And uh, also, uh, we'll be specifically addressing issues of uh, Islamophobia uh, in uh, India and uh, ways that that might be connected, in fact is connected, with things going on here in North America and Canada specifically, and also the ways in which our community uh, connects with or fails to connect with indigenous issues uh, here specifically in Canada, First Nations issues. And I'll be speaking just before uh, we uh, go through all the rest of the issues just for a few minutes about the question of racialization so we can kind of situate what's going on with South Asians in North America. Is that all right with everybody? Yeah? All right. Cool. Um, So basically, uh, about a year ago, I did a lot of research and put a paper together and gave it at the conference here, the WPSA Western Political Science Conference here at uh, UBC uh, last April, on the question of racial politics in South Asian, specifically America. I'm an American. I grew up in America. I've lived there all my life, for the most part, with the exception about 10 months when I was born in India as 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 a baby. Um, And so that's the context I'm operating in. And of course, the reason it became such a major issue in 2016 was because of the presidential election, obviously. Uh, Donald Trump also made a very interesting push towards the end of the election cycle to get South Asian votes, specifically as it's uh, identified in the United States, the quote, Hindu American community, uh, and to sort of segment them from the uh, other parts of the South Asian diaspora, which is, of course, something that is repeated, right, in South Asia as well. There's a partition in South Asia between Indians and Pakistanis, and this particular wedge issue is played on now in specifically American electoral politics. Um, And that 
played on the way in which Indians, South Asians, and I'm, I'm an Indian American, right? I'm from a, a officially Hindu American family background, but my parents are atheists and I'm an atheist as well, and that's sort of what I'm, I've always been comfortable with my life, but that's just sort of my background. And that's a relevant thing to point out because if you're not identified as being Muslim, in the South Asian diaspora, either among South Asians or among, you know, white populations in North America, there is a privilege to that because you're not put under the suspicion of potentially being a terrorist. Even though, of course, the way that I look, right, with the way that my beard grows in, etc., would have many people confused as to what my background is. So this is why racialization is such a fundamental issue here. And one of the interesting things that I hope we'll get to talk about today is really what is Islamophobia? Is Islamophobia fears of the tenets of the Islamic faith? Or is Islamophobia a racialized fear of people from that part of the world? And that part of the world would be, of course, the Middle East, North Africa, South Asia, Southeast Asia, all the way basically to the you know, Philippines even, where there have historically been, uh, for hundreds of years, large numbers of Muslim populations, right? So an interesting sort of threat is relevant here, right? On the one hand, South Asians, like all people, uh, want to be judged, you know, in the context of liberal legal societies on the basis of, you know, the quality of their behavior and, you know, being law-abiding and this sort of thing, right? Just like everybody else. But at the same time, the history of those structures has been racialized. And South Asians have in the United States been racialized along those lines. So at different times, South Asians have been able to perform a model minority identity that allows them to be almost completely included as white people, as middle class, you know, suburban dwelling kind of people. But then also at other times, there have been legal decisions, including by the U.S. Supreme Court, that have literally said South Asians are not Caucasians and cannot claim so legally. And therefore, of course, in the 19 teens and 1920s, it's the context I'm talking about here, excluded from the possibility of citizenship altogether. Right. So we are kind of a modal category. We're shifting in between the poles of inclusion and exclusion and poles that are defined by historic racialization, historic issues of white supremacy and black and native and First Nation subordination at the sort of other end of the totem pole of racial hierarchy. Okay. And so depending on sort of how good we play a loyal role, we get to be closer to whiteness or further away from it. Right. I hope that sort of explains some of the context of what I mean about racialization. And let me be clear, folks. Race is obviously a social construct. It's a politicized social construct, though, so it's one that we're all sort of forced to live within. Right. There's no real biological saliency to race. There's a, a, a d distribution of talents that's roughly equal, I would argue, across all of the so-called quote-unquote races or nations or any population group that you want to look at around the world. So I think it's very important that we secularize, frankly, our understanding of race. South Asians are not essentially Hindu. South Asians are not essentially Muslim. People who are Muslim in their family background are not just Muslim. They are more than just one thing in their identity, obviously. And so if we secularize our identities and historicize our identities, especially as diasporic peoples over here, we understand that 
indeed, that's the nature of human history, is groups of people migrating around the world and making the best that they can of whatever situation they find themselves in. So that's why identity is important and we want to hold on to it, but we don't want to treat it as a token or as something that somehow you know, makes us invincible or superior or anything like that, but rather is simply the, what, source of our language, the source of our culture, the source of the things our parents taught us and things that we ultimately, at least I, speaking for myself, I certainly want to pay homage and respect to at least the good lessons that I learned uh, from my parents. So I think that it's really important for us to understand the rise of racism against South Asians in the United States in the last, say, year or two in this context, right? With the sort of playing up of anxieties around difference and the way in which all of the nuances that we were able to just speak of together are sort of elided in those discussions that essentialize difference, right? That see difference as threatening. And furthermore, that sees difference as something that's immutable, that's unchangeable, that one can't have a conversation across, right? The way in which identity politics is being deployed in the United States right now, for example, right? Especially, of course, coming primarily from white supremacists for the most part, right? And of course, let me be clear, there are ways that people have responded to white supremacist identity politics that I would just personally say is unacceptable, right? It says that, you know, a lot of people have played identity politics in a way that says, you know, we're a special group and we can't talk to you all because somehow, you know, <coughs> we can't relate. But of course that wouldn't be true and it would be politically ridiculous to take such a position, right? We have to build coalitions of understanding and share our human stories across those divides. So in recent years, of course, we've seen a rise of hate crimes uh, against South Asians in the United States. Uh, in Kansas, uh, not too long ago, there was a series of shootings in Washington State uh, as well. Uh, and it's, I think, important to understand the uptick of these hate crimes in the context of the exposure that South Asians, of course, have had because South Asians have largely kind of played their own role. They've kind of gone their own way. They haven't really built the kinds of coalitions with other groups that uh, would frankly end up being, you know, protective, right, of the kinds of coalitions that you see built among the civil rights movement, for example, and other, uh, especially racial minorities, feminist groups, uh, queer movements, etc. So the question of how to confront racialization, I think then just to sort of sum up my remarks is twofold. One is that we have to look at the question of secularization of identity. This is something that all of us have, right? We all have, in addition to whatever stated identity, religious, ethnic, whatever, we have a secular, empirical, physical, material, lived, experiential identity that we have every day. So we have to give that individuality to everybody. And it's important to engage in anti-racist practices so that we don't box people into whatever they appear to be, right? We have to give people the freedom to be individual on the one hand. And on the other hand, we also have to continue to interrogate those structures that re-racialize people, right? That say that, you know, if you want to be an individual who's free, you have to dress a certain way, for example, as we see it happening in Quebec right now. So what is secularism for us? What is humanism? Is it something that means we all have to be officially atheist? Or does it mean that we become plural, diverse, and tolerant of uh, of a lot of different kinds of things and identities and people and outfits appearing in our society? It's a very, very important question. Because indeed in India, and I'll pass the microphone, to, I guess, to Samina next, actually. No? Sejal, you're going to go next? Okay, well, 
A very important thing to consider going forward is, of course, Canada has its very own kind of unique pluralism, right? Its own kind of multiculturalism and pluralism that's based on a kind of robust, at least theoretical idea of tolerance of difference, right? The Trudeau kind of vision from Pierre and now Justin and the folks in between in some cases as well, right? But in India, you have a very similar understanding of secularism too, where the state is not supposed to be officially promoting atheism or science or materialism, but rather is supposed to be a referee between different religious groups because, in a sense, what the Indian state has decided is, you know, this is what people are going to do on their own, so it's not our business to sort of push uh, religiosity or non-religiosity on the people, but simply to be a referee. Now, I'm not saying that I agree with that vision necessarily, but it is an important comparative vision of secularism, multiculturalism, and what that would cause, say, a place like Canada to look like would be very different than, say, the sort of French Republican laïcité understanding of nationalism and integration and universalism, for example. So on that note, you know, what's the position for difference, right, for folks like us and folks who are from any sort of different background and, 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 and is Canada going to be the kind of place that's welcoming to that difference, not just for us, but for all the differences, right? For everybody's ultimately individual uniqueness, hopefully. Okay, thanks. <laughs> uh, hello, I'm Sejal. Um, hi. <laughs> uh, okay, so first I'd like to say that I, like, I hope some of you are familiar, but we are on the unceded, unceded territories of the Musqueam Nation, of the Tsleil-Waututh Nation, and uh, Skomish Nation's territories. Um, that's important to note every time we meet, because we all have the privilege to be living on these lands that are not ours. Um, and that's kind of what I'm going to be talking about today. Um, so, oh, actually, just one side note is that um, in Sunsad, we are like we're it's a secular group but there's so many like there's such a variety of identities of of the members of Sansad some of us are practicing hindus some are practicing muslims some people are atheists some are agnostics some are christians it like there's such a broad variety and it's almost like the secularism is necessary for us to come together um so that we have a space to actually work on these social justice issues um which may sometimes mean protecting some of our 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 people who are facing discrimination because of their religion. So it, it's something to keep in mind. Um, yes, we're secular, but also some of us are practicing, we, you know, some of us might be practicing particular religions. Um, okay, so what I want to talk about is, like, I'm, I'm a South Asian descent woman. I was born in Saskatoon. I was born in Cree territory. Um, and then my parents moved here. My parents are from, uh, from India and Fiji. Um, but we... And uh, like my sister and I were born here. I've never even been to India, but I live here. But my understanding of the South Asian diaspora here is very strong. I grew up in Surrey. There's a huge South Asian population there. Um, I did not grow up facing the same racism that my parents did when they first came to Canada. Um, but I did face, and I continue to face, some of it. Um, uh, my issue that I'd like to talk about is, is and that I'm involved with in Sunside, is, is growing the South Asian diaspora's solidarity with Indigenous people and with, with black folks, with the black community. And my reason for that is, my, I feel is that we are at this point in history right now um, when the injustices against society's most marginalized people has come to the forefront of our collective attention. 
And this has become very apparent, I think, in this last year, especially. Uh, if you, you know, if you turn on the news at any point over this last year, you can see the top stories will be about um, indigenous people who are struggling for their sovereignty, who are struggling for water protection, um, who are trying, who are fighting to protect their women and girls because they go missing and murdered at unprecedented rates, who are trying to protect their youth, who have the highest suicide rates in the world right now, there's indigenous youth here in Canada. So something, something's amiss, right? If our indigenous brothers and sisters are, are struggling at, in this way, some, something's not right. Um, I also, we also see that black lives are being taken by the colonial state um, at a very high rate, both here and in the States. We, we think that it's just anti-black racism is just a problem in the States, but it's a problem here too. We just don't hear about it as much. The Canadian government does deport black people at a very high rate. They are incarcerated at a very high rate, same as indigenous people here. Um, there's a very high uh, over-representation over of indigenous people and black people in our, in our prison systems. That's a problem. That's a big problem. Um, so my issue is that like, these, in these injustices are caused by and perpetuated by the colonial state, in this case, Canada. Canada is a colonial state um, for the creation of this country that we live in. So me, as a South Asian descent woman, I face racism here, but I'm also living in a place where my freedom to be here has come at the cost. It has come at, off the backs of indigenous folks, and it has come off the backs of black folks. And that's, it's not okay that we continue to live this way with this, with this status quo. Um, so South Asian people have been affected by colonization and anti-black racism, but we are also complicit in it. Uh, and I think we've been more connected with indigenous folks' struggles and black people's struggles than we'd like to admit. So, for, I mean, if, if we talk about what we've been affected by as South Asian people, we have been colonized. Our, you know, India, South Asia has been colonized. And we didn't always have the right to be here. Like, South Asian people didn't always have the right to be here, part of Canadian society. We didn't always have the right to vote here. Um, and my parents only had permission to come in here to this country when the first Trudeau decided that he would allow South Asian professionals, working professionals. My mom is a doctor, my dad is an engineer. That's the only reason I was allowed to be here, is because we already had a bit of class privilege in India to be able to leave to come here and Fiji, right? So, um, yeah. So there's, there's, there's limits as to why I, we were allowed to be here um, in Canada. Um, within the South Asian community, we have anti-black racism, and it's the same type of anti-black racism that you will have in your white community. And I say, yes, your white community, because I have a South Asian community, you have a white community. That's a thing. Please take ownership of that. Um, we have shadism, you know, like we have, um, if your darker skin is considered not as desirable, that comes from European standards of beauty. Um, we do face racism. We do face over-policing. In Surrey, for years, when I was growing up, the, the first thing that would always be in the news is about shootings that were happening in Surrey and that it was the South Asian gangs that were, South young South Asian men that were um, causing problems in the, in the streets and, and so they were being incarcerated at high rates. Um, and we are over-policed. Uh, we do see deportations of lower-income class South Asian people here. Um, that wouldn't happen to me because my parents 
our do as a doctor and an engineer. That wouldn't happen. So I'm protected from that. But um, some of my some of my friends and some of our family members wouldn't be protected from that. They don't have that protection. Um, now, so I've, I talk about how South Asian people are affected here a little bit. Um, I'm also going to talk about how South Asian people have kind of conveniently adopted some of this Canadian nationalism. So we've also been complicit in this violence that is taking place against um, uh, against other communities. So we've, while we've struggled to earn a space in society here, um, we a, South a, a lot of South Asians have, have adopted this Canadian nationalism. And I think that maybe that happens across many different cultural groups. Um, but it's pushed forward the colonization of this country. Um, a lot of our communities ignore the struggles that indigenous people are continue to, to continuing to face. We see South Asian people representing in parliament. We see them representing in the military. We see them representing in the RCMP. However, I also see them representing um, when they are policing with violence against indigenous and black people. In Surrey, just over the summer, there was a South Asian cop, an RCMP officer, and a white cop that both attacked a 16-year-old black girl. They beat her to the ground at a bus stop. This, this, is, this is in Surrey. This is not too far from where you live. This is, this is where I live. Um, and that's frustrating for me. That's extremely frustrating because I see my own people taking part, being complicit in the violence that has been inflicted upon us. So I'm, I'm frustrated when, when the Canadian state says, oh, we're a very multicultural co country, but the expectation is that my people are, are to be complicit in this type of violence. That's not what I like about multiculturalism. Um, now, if I were to talk a little bit more about how, we're, how we should be aligning ourselves with indigenous folks, um, one of the big things on my mind and, and what I studied was environmental, uh, like n environmental studies. So looking at climate change, looking at um, you know our our lifestyles, how we live materially. You know what what is the environmental cost of the things we uh, of how we live our lives? Um, we live very materially heavy lives here in North America, and that comes at a cost environmentally. It requires a lot of oil, it requires a lot of water, it requires a lot of energy to produce the things that we physically have around us. For, e for every household to have two cars and four TVs and every person to have a laptop, it comes at a cost. And my, uh, one of the things I was learning about was that um, this comes at a cost primarily for, um, uh, for our most marginalized people. So when we see indigenous folks who are on the front lines fighting for water, pr for protecting their water here in BC, we should be listening. They're telling us something, and they've been saying it for so long. Why are they still having to scream and yell? It's important. Like we, if we are using water at a rate that's unsustainable, what are we going to do? Like we don't see, we don't really see the production line of what it takes to create the phone that's in your hand. That happens somewhere else in the world, in some other place that's been colonized. But we have the product right here in front of us. Um, we don't really see, we, uh, for us, we don't really see what happens up in Fort Mac in the tar sands to see what it takes to get us the oil so that we can, I can drive from Surrey to here for this meeting today. I don't, get to, I don't really have to see that. But people there do. It affects their water. It affects their, their food. It affects their, their young people when the oil that's being extracted right from their homelands, from their territories, has such an environmental impact. Like, there's so much pollution that comes out of just the extraction process, right? And 
So when we see people who are fighting to protect their land, we should be listening. It tells us that, we're, that something's not right. We just simply don't see all the, inf the impacts or the effects of how we live our lives. Um, so uh, I, I didn't quite, quite get to touch on, uh, I don't know if I have much time to talk about it, but um, my, my issue right now is in that the thing that I'd like to really discuss uh, with the South Asian diaspora, but also with everybody, is that we should be showing greater solidarity with indigenous people. They are fighting for not just their environmental rights and protection, but it, it's also gonna be for us. It'll be for your grandchildren and my grandchildren. And so that, I feel right now, is pertinent. It ha like, we have to talk about this right now because it's not something that just affects, environmental, uh, climate change and stuff is not just gonna affect indigenous people. It's not just gonna affect people that are living in the South Pacific where water levels are rising at unprecedented rates. It's gonna affect everybody. We just haven't felt it yet here. So, um, yeah, I hope that this is something that we can maybe talk a little bit more about in the question period later. So, thank you. Hi, uh, I'm Samina. I'm an international student here pursuing my PhD in art history at UBC. And um, I, I'm born and brought up in India in uh, New Delhi, which is the capital of India. So in my today's talk, I will be talking about the uh, conditions of minorities in India, particularly Muslims, and, uh, and the role of Sansad in raising awareness about this issue within the diasporic South Asian community in Vancouver, in Canada. So uh, because it's a completely different geopolitical uh, location and context, so I have written down my notes and it, I, I will talk through facts and figures so that I can give you a proper context of what is happening in India and how it also affects the South Asian diasporic community in Canada or maybe in North America or in uh, you know, other countries, wherever the diaspora is. So um, I'll just give you the history, I'll move back and forth between the history and the contemporary to, to give you the idea about the political situation in India right now. Um, so India is a land of diversity and different religions with, uh, with Hindus in majority. According to the 2011, 2011, uh, 2011 census, the religious composition of the population is as follows. Hindu religion has 80.5% followers. Islam, which is the Muslims, have like 14.4% followers, which is roughly 174 million people. So the Indian Muslims comprises a population of 174 million people in India, right? That's a huge, and we still call them minority in India, right? Uh, and Christians are like 2.3% and Sikhs are 1.9% followers in India. So clearly the Indian Muslim form the largest religious minority in India. India is a secular republic and the constitution guarantees equal rights to all its citizens without any discrimination. Uh, the Indian constitution provides many legal safeguards to the minority community and special provisions are made for their social and economic growth. Despite these, minorities in India face all types of inequity in the public sphere. Even the violence and human rights violations of the minority community in India is a common phenomenon. Although a secular democracy, India has witnessed systematic discrimination against the Muslim minority, that's in quote, it's minorities, 174 million people, in particular, and other minority groups in general by the ultra-Hindu nationalists. The prejudice has gone on since the independence of India in 1947, the bloody partition of India and Muslim Pakistan. 
resulted in large-scale rights. It forced Hindus and Sikhs to leave for Pakistan and caused millions of Muslims to immigrate uh, from India. Since India chose to become a secular democracy, many Muslims who stayed back in India have always been looked down upon with suspicion and mistrust by the Hindu fascists who have always wished to convert a pluralist Indian society into a Hindu nation as an answer to the Muslim theocracy in the neighborhood, which is Pakistan. Uh, it is for this reason that the Hindu extremist assassinated Mahatma Gandhi. Like Mahatma Gandhi was against the uh, rights and the genocide which was taking place during uh, partition in India, like 1947 the father of the Indian nation in 1948. Gandhi was a supporter of Hindu-Muslim unity. He wanted to give concessions to the Muslim, that is called Muslim appeasement. He wanted to give uh, concessions to the Muslims and try to save them from the onslaught of the Hindu extremists. The ultra-Hindu nationalists have been active on the Indian soil since then. Hindu nationalists or right-wing are deeply rooted in the ideology of RSS, which is a party, which is a national party, sort of a paramilitary Hindu nationalist organization, mainly comprising of upper-caste Hindus. During nationalist movement in colonial India, they were, the RSS people, were the loyals, they were the loyals of the Britishers in colonial India and were inspired by the fascist movements of Europe, especially the Nazis in Germany, and the idea of homogeneous nation based on pure race and religion, which is the upper caste Hindu Brahminism. In India, we have a caste system also. There is a whole hierarchy of caste system. From which caste you come, you know? So that talks a lot about the context you are coming from in a particular society like India, right? So re religion and caste works hand in hand to create the hierarchies and the racial profiling of the people in India itself. Right. So the current Prime Minister of India, the Narendra Modi, is a lifelong member of the Rashtriya Swam Sevak Sangh, which is the RSS, the party which I was talking about, which is like inspired by the Nazis' idea of pure race and pure religion. Right. Uh, so N Narendra Modi comes from that party, and he himself is a lifelong member of it. And previously, he was a chief minister of a Gujarat, which is a westernmost state in India, for 14 years. And Gujarat had not only been touted as a model for neoliberal development in India, but also have been recognized as a laboratory for Hindu nationalist fascism that has gone hand-in-hand hand with his agenda, the Narendra Modi's agenda. In 2002, Gujarat genocide, when Narendra Modi was a chief minister, of Gujarat, approximately 2,000 Muslims were killed. Rapes, looting, destruction of property, brutal killing of Muslims, and denial of justice to the Gujarat communal right victims have created a sense of fear among the Muslims in living in India in larger parts. Also since then, there has been a steady process of consolidation of Hindu nationalist ideology. Modi's ascension to power in 2014 has given rise to hypernationalism. Uh, heteropatriarchy, militarism, systematic appropriation of the status, state apparatuses for political purposes, subversions of academic institutions and their occupation by party appointees, attack on all critics, journalists and dissenters, attack on the arts, artists, writers and organized mob violence against Dalits and Muslims have been escalating. Demonizing Indian Muslims have been part of the right-wing political agenda and it has created a consensus among the general public about the place, I put that in quotes, about the place of Muslims in India. It is as if either Muslims should behave themselves or get out of India. So this is the situation.
right now in India. The core of agenda of the right-wing propaganda is to keep Indian Muslims in a continuous state of rights, relief camps, and repression. It is to make the biggest minority irrelevant in by turning them into the other with capital O or enemy, right? The construction of Muslims as the enemy is a systematic construction historically rooted and mobilized by the Brahmanical Hindu nationalist elites since the partition times or since the 19th century nationalist movement when India was fighting against the colonials, Britishers. Today, the truth is that minorities are at the receiving end of Hindutva fascism and majority of Indian Hindus sway to the tune of Modi, whether it is the foot soldiers or the virtual soldiers of Hindutva working on social media Media, rural or urban, illiterate or educated. Groups like Sansad, what we do here is like we educate people and raise awareness through workshops, public lectures and protest rallies to denounce stereotypes and fundamentalism of every shade. Sansad believes in working with people for plural, secular and just society and that there should be absolutely no compromise with any organization, whether representing a majority or a minority community, that supports religious extremism or fanaticism. Sansad, which is a South Asian network for secularism and democracy, is an, is an organization of South, India, South Asian diaspora based in British Columbia, Canada. It comprises of people with origin in Bangladesh, India, Nepal, Pakistan and Sri Lanka. It was earlier known Known as the Non-Resident Indians for Secularism and Democracy, NRISAD Nrisad, and got established in 1993 following the attack on the 17th century mosque Babri Masjid in Ayodhya in India by the Hindu communal forces on December 6, 1992. So this decade when the Sansad came into form, uh, the 1993, this was the decade, this was the era of economic liberalization and it saw the growth of GDP growth of India rising annually like by 5.7%. So we opened up the economic doors for liberalization. This was the era of neoliberalization in India and this was also the time when the right wing was rising up, right? So it saw the rise of extreme right-wing Hindu organization and manipulation of incidents of violence for the electoral gain in India. Most prominent among these organizations are RSBJP, Bajrang Dal, Shiv Sena. However, all of them work together under the philosophy of Hindutva and are rapidly anti-minority in their stance. And many scholars and historians in India place the rise of right-wing within the global context, which also saw the rise of divisive and ultra-nationalist forces and Islamophobia in Europe and North America. So it is working simultaneously in hand in hand, right? So uh, following the several years of work opposing fanaticism and communal work in violence in India, the development of Sansad and, the, uh, and its uh, earliest form, the Nrisad, exhausted itself. However, the Vancouver branch of the organization reorganized through its practice that the, uh, that the concerns of uh, Sansad regarding minorities and human rights were not specifically Indian but South Asian and had to be reformulated from the South Asian diaspora as a whole. So, uh, so Sansad as a democratic and a secular uh, organization promote peace uh, and uh, and just development in South Asia in South Asia by affirming to human rights the rule of law and the full and equal participation of all people in the economic, cultural, social and political life of the region. The formation of such a secular democratic identity within the South Asian diaspora in Canada with the aim of realizing the common interest of the people of South Asia is the goal of the Sansad. And that's what we work here.
Hi, my name is Samia. So I'm a recent UBC graduate. And I will also be talking on Islamophobia, but I'll be uh, talking specifically about Islamophobia in Canada. So uh, recently there was uh, anti-Islam, well, anti a kind of a racist rally, pretty much as like a white supremacist rally in Vancouver. That was supposed to be held on August 19th. Instead, thousands of Vancouverites came out to show that the city of Vancouver and the residents will not stand for this kind of hate and Islamophobia. Um, Sunsad was there. We were there as members. We came out to show support for the rally, as well as we had a speaker, Sejal. She spoke uh, as um, a representative of Sunsad. So basically, this was really important. And I think it's really important that we as Vancouverites show that we will not you know, tolerate this kind of hate in our city, that this is not who we are and what we stand for. Um, but as great as it was, I think it also showcased that this isn't enough. A lot of people don't know that three weeks prior to that, there was actually a smaller rally, uh, soldiers of Odin, they showed up to the Surrey Mosque. So I live, yeah, I live two blocks from the Surrey Mosque, and that's just completely unacceptable if you think about exactly the effect and impact that has on a community of color. So these rallies, they're not just happening in big metropolitan areas like the Vancouver City Court. There are people, there are white supremacists who are organizing and coming out and actually standing up against people of color in other areas. We just don't hear about it because it's not happening in the city of Vancouver. So this showcased to me that you know privilege is such a thing. Even when we're talking about Islamophobia and where we're counteracting that Islamophobia, it depends who it is, right? A lot of people here, we even talked about um, the rally and how it kind of turned into a, you know, love will solve everything type of, or, you know, <laughs> event. Um, and in reality, it just showcases that it's not just how we speak up, but who gets to speak up and how important it is that those voices also speak up for these people when it's not just in big uh, rallies in the city core. It also showcased the underlying white supremacy of the state that these people were even allowed to uh, use their free speech to organize and create such an event. And they were able to come out there and be able to actually spew their anti-Islamic rhetoric. Um, so in the general context, a lot of people think that Islamophobia doesn't exist in Canada and that we live in a very peaceful and anti-racist society. Well, the truth is, um, there, Canada has a long history of racism, whether it's from the colonial background. Um, we have a huge legacy of the residential school system. We also have a huge legacy of anti-black racism, that Sajal mentioned. We just don't hear about it because it's not as prevalent as it is in the States. But even in Canada, we do have Islamophobia. I would describe this as a negativity or a prejudice against Muslims or Islam. Obviously, we don't have a prime minister or a president who is outrageously uh, racist and Islamophobic as Trump is. But I don't think we, I don't know if we remember even back in, I think it was a couple of years ago when Stephen Harper was proposing the niqab ban. So this has happened in our own country. We're just not aware of it because it, it's not happening currently and it wasn't to the same uh, world stage. Um, so it happens and exists like racism. We at Sunsad think of Islamophobia as a form of racism. Um, so it happens and exists in many ways. I think we all can, all can remember the Quebec shooting, the mosque shooting that happened earlier last year. 
So whether it's like a big um, macro event, uh, like a shooting, it also, or whether it's small things like what happens on microaggression or uh, injustices, we notice um, an increased climate of harassment and discrimination towards Muslims, especially in light of the Trump presidency. Um, it's not as though the Trump presidency created this kind of Islamophobia or terror. It's just that his, his electing, election to power has kind of created a peeling back of the mask and allowed people who hold these sentiments and beliefs to now feel confident in voicing them. So these people who before were hidden and you know thought they couldn't have these views, they're now given the platform and liberty to believe what they're thinking and doing is okay. Um, some of the effects of Islamophobia on communities of color are very uh, huge. So a study shows that post 9-11, the majority of news coverage on Muslims has been negative which is, as uh, Jovian was pointing out, we exist as so much more than just Muslims, but post 9-11, the kind of news coverage that's been happening has been lumping all Muslims into one category and it's been categorically negative. Furthermore, it really perpetuates the idea that Muslims, even within Canadian society, do not have the right to be here. Or that even though they are here and Muslim, that they don't really have the right to practice their religion. Now the, the whole issue in Quebec with the niqab also, now you, have to, you can't cover your face um, while utilizing public services, just brings this very point to light. Now these Muslims, because of what's happening on a worldwide stage or because of what you know, is happening in terms of Islamophobia, are not being given their privilege and right to be able to practice their religion out of fear that they are somehow dangerous or inciting terror. And I think that is the biggest issue with Islamophobia, is the conflation of violence and terrorism to all Muslims. Whether it be racial profiling of men, brown men and women, whether they're Muslim or not, you could just be South Asian and still be categorized as a terrorist or dangerous in some way. The now leader of the NDP had the same situation happen to him when he was being heckled by a racist um, lady at one of his events. Um, furthermore, this is, it just shows that whenever a negative act happens, it automatically, when it's, if you're a brown man or if you're a Muslim man, it automatically gets characterized back to you being a Muslim. That happened because of you being a Muslim. Whereas if it's a white shooter, automatically you're not being given that categorization that that happened due to your faith. Uh, this is particularly ironic because Muslims are statistically the greatest victims of uh, Muslim violence. So this Islamophobia is, I think, really interesting to me psychologically because it doesn't really have a factual basis. If you claim Muslims are all violent, that may, and then we are uh, the community that's like very violent or because of our faith that we uh, Muslims are violent, um, this doesn't make sense because statistically Muslims are the victims who are being impacted by this kind of Islamic violence. Um, furthermore, when it comes to um, Islamophobia against people of color or against Muslims, um, Muslim women are the ones who are greater, greater, the most impacted. Um, so women who are wearing a hijab are most targeted um, 
in terms of Islamophobic acts of violence. This is because of the conflation of both the um, compounded, the compounding of race as well as sexism. It's this idea that um, Muslim women cannot choose for themselves what they're wanting to do, especially when it comes to their head covering, the niqab, or whether it's you know choosing to cover themselves. There's a huge issue on whether they have the freedom or the choice to be able to make that decision or not, or whether they're making the right decision or not in terms of that. Um, so overall, there's a lot of problems with Islamophobia in Canada. I'm kind of just giving a very casual overlook of the whole thing. Um, we as Sunset really uh, try to think of how we can be you know, allies and stand up to this kind of um, Islamophobic hate. Um, so one thing that I think is really important is to have these kind of conversations within your communities. Like Sajal was mentioning about indigenous you know, solidarity or any kind of racism. It's to go back to your community and really look at yourselves and the kind of views and biases that you may have. Even within our community, I know that as I'm actually not even a practicing Muslim, and I know that I sometimes uh, in my community have to have a lot of really interesting and you know difficult conversations in my own Muslim community. Similarly, I think you know as much as we claim to not be Islamophobic, as, as much as we claim to be very uh, uh, progressive, we do have some inherent biases. In our community, we have anti-black racism. So I do think, especially as white communities, that we should you know, go back, come to these events, and then go back home and have real conversations and try to address that kind of bias that we may be having. Um, also, um, this is really important, and um, I think this is a more long-term thing. Don't just come to rallies for one day and you know go there and try to speak up or uh, counteract these racists and then don't come and do anything else after. If you're really invested in this kind of anti-oppressive work, if you're really invested in this kind of anti-racist work, go out to other organizations, come out to Sunset events, really show solidarity with the people and their grassroots movements and the kind of work that they're doing. So this kind of racism, we won't need anti-racist rallies. So we can actually build a long-term progressive movement to try and actually change the structural racism that occurs in this city as well as North America and around the world. That's what's really important and I think it's so great, like I'm, I'm just talking so it's hard to really uh, figure out exactly what I want to say, but it's really important that we're having conversations like this as Sunsad's reaching out to the BC Humanist Organization because we need this kind of interconnection and this kind of conversations where now that you've heard us speak, maybe you'll go back, you'll come out to more Sunsad events, and we can really create you know, an avenue and an opportunity for long-term structural change. Okay, thank you. <laughs>